travellers, and welcome to Podcast 95 in our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. Now, this week, we're looking back over recent podcasts and tying up a few loose ends. COVID tests, cold water swimming, the ethics of elephant riding, the much-overlooked destination of Transnistria, new European trains should keep us busy. And joining us is Silas. Hello, Silas. Hello, you both. Thank you so much for the invite. Our pleasure. Thank you for joining us, Silas, in your busy, busy time. And uh, Silas, a couple of weeks ago, went to Italy, a lucky fellow, accompanied by top-level advice on how best to spend seven days in that lovely country, beginning in Florence or Pisa and flying back from Bologna or Venice. And ahead of his trip, I actually sought recommendations specifically for Silas from Maria Elena Rossi, from who's the marketing director of the Italian Tourist Board in Rome. Yes. Well, first of all, it's excellent to get into Pisa because he can visit this beautiful con- uh, city, the cultural city. And But then he should definitely go to Florence, um, not only because the city of Florence is beautiful, but because, as I said, in Florence at the moment, the Uffizi Gallery is also offering the opportunity to, uh, let's say, not only visit the gallery, but, but also stroll around. And there is an excellent railway system in Italy and in Tuscany, which can connect you from Florence to the small areas around. But also it can connect you, first of all, to go to Bologna. So in Bologna, you will get in one, in half an hour in with a high-speed train. And Bologna is one of, let's say, a second-tier city. We can consider it culturally speaking, but it's a beautiful city which just has been um, um, uh, quoted from UNESCO as a, as a World Heritage, uh, Heritage Site, thanks to the, its kilometers of arcades, which uh, allow you to visit the whole city, even if it rains a little bit in, in, in Bologna. And it's, it's um, a beautiful medieval town that was actually its golden years were during the medieval town, but and with wonderful pieces of art and museums, and it's the city of the towers, and it's the city also of the best food that you can ever expect, of course, in uh, in Italy. Especially pastas are are very very special. <laughs> Well, thanks to uh, Maria Elena Rossi and uh, Silas, I have to ask you, how much of her recipe for a great week in uh, Italy did you follow? Well, we tried to follow it as much as we could. um, And certainly there were some brilliant recommendations there. Um, We ended up flying into uh, Florence as opposed to Pisa. So spent the first three nights uh, exploring her recommendations there. So pretending to know what we what some things about renaissance art and definitely going to see Fitzy gallery and going to see michelangelo's david um and what was what was lovely at this time was that actually these were not very busy places in november and i think that she even kind of would said that it was a good time to go based on that so it was lucky to go to go and have that that experience there without people around how much uh, were the covid restrictions restrictive not a huge amount they um the way that italians do it is they have they use your qr code from your vaccine basically everywhere um there's that that's kind of just a 
a rule to basically walk into any public space where there's going to an enclosed public space. You need that. Um, but other than that, and mask wearing is mandatory and also I feel like is much more kind of culturally accepted. The one thing that was quite interesting that we that's definitely different from here is that you have to, in some places, wear the surgical masks, the blue surgical masks, cloth masks are less accepted. And that was even on the flight out there. You, you weren't allowed to wear a cloth mask on the plane. You had to wear a surgical mask. Um, so that's a bit of a tip, I suppose, so that you don't have to spend like £10 for a 10p bit of surgical face mask is to bring your own um, to the airport. Oh, that is quite useful. Yeah. Now, you told me earlier that you went cycling um, near Florence, which uh, always strikes me as, uh, even as a keen cyclist, a um, a potential recipe for disaster in uh, Italy. But uh, is, is that not the case? Oh, it was so much fun. Um, we went cycling mainly out of Florence. So obviously, we had to start inside the city to pick up bikes. But then very quickly made our way into the hilltops and then we cycled through Fiesoli and Settignano and then into all of the hilltop vineyards at, um, kind of overlooking the River Arno, um, which was, we were very lucky with the weather and was also very nice to drop into these very tiny vin- vineyards to try their wares oh, as we went by. That's quite clever because presumably you could... Uh carry on cycling whereas um had you been in a car it might not have been such a good idea the the added thing that we did which was the fact that there was generally kind of you know these 15 20 percent gradient hills is that we felt a bit naughty but we got these electric bikes with motors that you could switch on (laughs) and maybe made it slightly less risky for a few wines down afterwards that we were could kind of just take our feet off the pedals <laughs> well it was a holiday after all um <laughs> what about bologna because i have been there and i thought it was an absolutely wonderful place i think we both love bologna i think bologna is much more down to earth than florence and feels much less touristy it kind of just felt like a university city i don't know like kind of like you know like bristol like there was a lot of old architecture but it was much more much less kind of renaissance a bit more brutalist in points and then and actually i think it suited the rain we were a bit unlucky with the weather in bologna but like maria said a you're covered with these porticos everywhere and b it's quite like an atmospheric sort of vibe to it um lots of bars amazing food um really nice galleries that weren't all kind of 13th century there's a lot more modern stuff that i think suited us a bit more um so we, yeah, I think we really, really liked it, and probably would have wished to have spent a bit more time there. What about the best food that you can ever expect? Uh, Maria Elena's um, uh, suggestion was that borne out. Oh, the food was the food was unbelievable. Yeah, um, it was really so. Ash is vegetarian, and that's your partner who went. That's my partner. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she. Uh, I think we both having had traveled through bit other bits of Europe where maybe they're slightly less catering to the the vegetarian the, the vegetarian options were, were brilliant as well which is great the pasta was obviously unbelievable we learned the difference between tortelloni and tortellini which I kind of thought wasn't I thought that was the same thing we went to a so Ash found this and I'm not even really sure how she did but ended up doing a cooking class in a, a bolognese man's kitchen who's not a chef but was just kind of 
I think as part of COVID, had his un- his employment had changed, and so he just started running cooking classes from home initially through Zoom, and then when the rules had opened up a bit, allowed people into his house, obviously with like masks and cut like vaccine things and stuff, and it ended up just being three of us in his kitchen and him teaching us him and his grandma's recipes of how to make tagliatelle and tortelloni. Um, and what was brilliant was that the third person who came with us, who just booked onto it, we didn't know him, was a gentleman from South Korea called John, who um, was a chef <laughs> himself and ran an Italian restaurant in Seoul, <laughs> but had never been to Italy. And this was his this was his kind of culinary exploration of of a cuisine that he already professionally cooked. So he definitely put us to shame. Uh, and but it was it was great to have him there, and he was obviously a very very kind of diligent student. While me and Ash were more focusing on the wine and having a laugh as well. <laughs> so so if you were a master chef, what what dish would you have um, presented to the judges? So we made two types. So we made the obviously we had to make the um, uh, make the pasta ourselves. So starting from scratch um, with one of the kind of and then we then you rolled it out with one of the pasta pasta machines made strips for the tagliatelle the fun bit was folding the tortellonis which is actually quite like a nice little kind of bit of skill the way that you like make the little package and then twirl it around to make the little handle bit at the end um uh, I wasn't as good as the other two so you could definitely tell my ones from in in the batch um we made yeah like a spinach and ricotta tortelloni so classic with a, a sage um like a butter and sage uh, sauce which is yeah simple but very very delicious mm-hmm. yum yum well th- thank you silas uh, you must stay with us because um we're going to uh, check up on our uh recent twitter post bag uh simon there's a question for you from natalie hi simon have you any idea when switzerland will review its restrictions uh, yes, constantly, um, Natalie, is is the answer. Um, they, they already have. Now, this goes back, I'm guessing, sort of two or three weeks, when suddenly, in response to uh, the Omicron variant, Switzerland said, right, any country that has got any cases of Omicron at all, um, anybody coming in from those is going to have to quarantine for, I think, five days. It might have been longer. But anyway, I mean, it completely... Uh, uh, put people off traveling. Furthermore, um, as you might know, guys, um, two of the big international airports in Switzerland are um, either partially or wholly within French territory. That's uh, Geneva, partially in France, uh, Basel, uh, completely enwrapped in, in, in by uh, by France. And the thing that has always been that you can land and then think, well, do I want to go to France or do I want to go into Switzerland? And that's um, uh, that that's your choice. And even if you were going to say, I don't want to go to Switzerland, lovely country, beautiful mountains, fantastic um, crocs, etc. But I'm heading for France, thanks. Uh, you still had to quarantine. Um, and that was a complete pain. Now they've kind of almost swung to the um, opposite uh, end of the spectrum, having uh, clearly put off an awful lot of people. And they are now saying Switzerland's borders are open for fully vaccinated travellers from the UK. No quarantine required. And the NHS COVID pass is accepted in place of the Swiss COVID certificate, which is required for indoor settings in Switzerland. So they're all looking, relatively speaking, quite easy. Um, and for um, for the next couple of days, I mean, surely this is going to be reviewed again, isn't it? Uh, Soon? Who knows? Who knows what will happen? I know that um, uh, from 
sometime in the next few days, 12 to 15 year olds will be able to get an NHS COVID pass letter. And uh, just to give you some sense of what Twitter is like, I just announced this fact. I didn't say go and get one. I didn't say this is fantastic news. I just said this is the case. This is what the NHS is saying. And my goodness me, um, I, I was sent Nazi insignias. I was uh, uh, one word from, from Muggsy Gogs, which just said psycho. And um, uh, somebody calling themselves the doctor said, who the um, heck do you think you are? That's not quite the word. Advising jabs for kids with no long term data. You are a disgrace. So there we are. Um, <laughs> uh, it's an interesting world. Well, I, I think that you'll be on the right side of history on this one. And I'm not sure what the credentials of this Twitter doctor will be. Well, I trust yours more. Yeah. And and uh, and you are a doctor, aren't you, Silas? We might mention this is that fair enough yeah no and and i it's i think it's it's obviously horrible when you put yourself out there and <laughs> on twitter and then this is the sort of vitriol you're getting especially when you're just trying to without any bias just educate the public on on what's going on in terms of yeah. a, a covid pass yeah harsh times um well here's a rather more um friendly question or maybe it's a point really i think made by ronaldo um he sent this one um simon i sent a note re big problem for passengers arriving in portugal border guards don't accept self-administered antigen from randox i presume that's a company um they hold people there, then make them sign a document for illegal entry fine, 500 to 800 euros. They say Portugal, Portugal's rules only allow lab technicians administered antigens. Is that, that sounds kind of rather grim. Well, no, it sounds exactly what the um, Portuguese are um, effectively saying. Well, uh, so, so that the, the Visit Portugal says you've got to have either a PCR test uh, 72 hours before you board or a, quote, laboratorial rapid antigen test, which is lateral flow. And like many, many countries, they would actually want you and I to turn up with a professionally administered test. Uh, result because otherwise well the, the sorts that the um uh the government in the uk allow where i basically um uh, stand there with my passport and a lateral flow test which i swear um has come from me and not from next door's cat um and, and that gets me a certificate and they're saying hang on we don't think that's good enough really and uh, in fact after ronaldo got in touch i did contact the foreign office and say look please tell people um, this is the case because it clearly is because that's what the Portuguese say. Um, they haven't yet changed it, but you never know. Um, always, of course, wherever you're traveling, go to the actual source of the uh, information, which in this case is Visit Portugal and find out exactly what they want. And I'm sorry that people are having a messy, messy time, but uh, uh, these are difficult times. You've got to have all the information you need rather than just what you might have read um, randomly on the internet. Oh, well, thanks for that, Simon. Let's turn to our podcast about Christmas getaways now, which uh, rapidly yeah. and for obvious reasons became less about getaways for this Christmas and more about getaways from Christmas's past. Um, and uh, in that uh, podcast, swimming and particularly cold water swimming featured. An old friend of You Should Have Been There, Rebecca, got in touch with a tweeted message to uh, at You Should Have BT. Hello, last week you asked for listeners' swimming experiences. 
I've already regaled you with my tales of outdoor swimming in sub-zero temperatures in Moscow and my close encounter with jellyfish in Thailand, but I do have a couple more great memories of swimming. Many years ago, I went on a conservation volunteers holiday in northern Greece, staying in a little seaside village and ferry port called Keramoti. We were camping on the beach, and the area just so happened to be renowned for its enormous quantity of mosquitoes, which wasn't ideal when staying in tents with no mosquito nets. One day we were taken to visit the valley of the nearby river Nestos, where we enjoyed a swim in the shallow waters. It's an experience I'll always remember, as the surroundings were so beautiful, and it was such a welcome relief both from the August heat and also from the continual onslaught of insects back at the campsite. I suppose that's more refreshing water swimming, isn't it, actually, from from Rebecca. But thanks very much for that, Rebecca. And uh, Silas, I know that uh, as a Doctor, you have uh, visited, and I have no doubt swum in uh, in in uh, in African waters. But uh, tropical tropical waters can be quite uh, quite dangerous, can't they, to swim in? I, well, I definitely got in trouble for swimming in Lake Malawi before, which I went as a medical student, and definitely part of the risk assessment was to not do that because of its endemic schistosomiasis. <laughs> um, but it was too tempting, and everyone else does it, and you can take one pill and you clear yourself of it. Um, and that was certainly very, very refreshing because it was in the middle of a very, very humid summer. Um, so uh, it was the, the Cape McClear, which is like a little beach area on the side of Lake Malawi, um, oh, was a place yes. that felt too too beautiful not to swim. I can recommend everybody um, the parasite-free Ruanzori Mountains of Uganda, where they've got beautiful alpine streams. I tried to hit, uh, swimming there, which was a, an absolute joy. Um, and then, because I was quite high up, I needed to hitchhike down to the nearest town and um, managed to get a lift for the first and only time in a car with no engine but with seven other passengers and that was very exciting because um uh it could roll it was being taken in to get a new engine and obviously no point taking the old one with them um and it was great until we reached a, a slight incline where everybody had to get out and obviously push it up but we um uh we we, we reached we reached the bottom um they went off and uh, no doubt got their uh uh engine and i went off um and enjoyed the wonderful life of uh, of that part of africa well that's that's amazing because i was in the windy impenetrable forest just south of that a couple of years ago and even with cars with engines we managed to get stuck in the mud and break down about every half an hour so i'm impressed that you managed to make any progress without an engine very good. Now, here on You Should Have Been There, we're always trying out new ideas and themes, as true explorers should. For instance, there was a, a new section which we introduced recently, although we seem to have forgotten it now, which um, in which we would discuss in some depth the question from a listener. I suppose that happened to you, didn't it, Silas, actually, with the Italian job? Um, but uh, Tim Coxon, another regular, has been in touch on the subject of no-go areas, part of our um, ethical travel um, uh, strand. And uh, this is what Tim had to say. Question for your new section. I would like to visit Thailand, mainly for a beach holiday, but would also like an elephant safari while there. Wife reluctant, though, due to Thailand's seedy reputation. Any suggestions on where would meet that spec? 
Thanks. Well, yes, anywhere on the beautiful island of Phuket. Um, Thailand does have a seedy reputation, but it's very easy to avoid. It's actually, you're much more likely to be confronted with it if you are a a single male traveller, because regrettably some single male travellers go there for, uh, I'm sorry to say, sex tourism. But Tim, if I can just pick up on uh, your wish to have an elephant safari, I would... um, urge against this. Now, my first trip to Thailand, I had a fantastic uh, uh, experience on an elephant going through the northern highlands of of Thailand. Um, And we were told that uh, these were working animals. Their main occupation in logging was being scaled back and therefore we were doing them a favour. But I've since found out that besides all the other threats that elephants face, habitat degradation being slaughtered for ivory um it, the, the way that these elephants for tourism purposes are uh recruited are, are far from benign basically a calf is taken at a very young age from from his or her mother um they are then trained using techniques which seem pretty brutal and effectively um th- their spirit has to be broken in order to for them to accept that they they will have um tourists like me climbing on their back so so i think uh, while while elephants are a, a wonder and it's great to see them in the wild um i would uh, urge against any involvement with them from a tourism point of view that involves actually uh, uh riding on them well, let's move on to an entirely uh, morally uncontentious way of travelling. In fact, I think if you wanted to travel on the uh, moral high ground, uh, then uh, the train is the way to do it. And uh, I remember that this time last year, a uh, uh, a new European travel timetable had just come out. And Simon, has it happened again this year? Uh, yes, and it does every time um, in, in the middle of December and um the, the most significant additions, according to the new edition of the timetable, are all in southeastern Europe, and they mostly involve the, the, the great country of Moldova, the smallest, I believe, of the former Soviet republics. The great news is, if you're travelling in that part of the world, you'll now be able to travel on a direct train from Yash in Romania across the border to Chisinau, the Moldovan capital, and the link from Odessa, uh, which is Ukraine's finest city on the Black Sea, to Chisinau, um, will also be back three days a week. And further north, if you're travelling, St. Petersburg to Helsinki, the Allegro Express service has resumed, but you have to be either Russian or Finnish to travel on it until further notice. Ah, well, we must uh, we must look into that in a bit more detail in a in a forthcoming podcast because I have an interest uh, in the uh, slightly bizarre country. Well, it, it's it's actually a breakaway republic of Transnistria, which is uh, part of Moldova, but uh, also thinks that it's part of the Soviet Union. If I'm right, aren't I? <laughs> Uh, it is the strangest corner of Europe, definitely, uh, now that the Berlin Wall has fallen. There's a, a kind of, yes, the, 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 there's a, a an entire little statelet in southeastern Europe that really does think that the USSR is still in business. Well, Silas, just before you go, and thank you for joining us, um, we need to submit you to uh, one of our occasional uh, features. This is the guest interrogation, I mean survey. Um, so first of all, we need to know your favourite destination. 
Gosh, that's a big, big question. I think that I think probably, and this might just be because it's in more recent memory, um, is an area called Lake Bunyonyi, which is in the the southwestern part of Uganda, just on the border of Rwanda. Um, it's this um, very, very stunning lake with multiple little islands that you can swim to between. And it feels like you're both within a forest and also on this kind of tropical island, which is... Um, yeah, very, very spectacular. And I would definitely encourage anyone to go. So what was that called again? Lake Bunyonyi, ah. which I think is, it, it, they, when you go there, they'll say it's the deepest lake in, in Africa. But actually, I think it's science, science has said it isn't. So it's <laughs> one of those classic places where the, the, the myth goes beyond the truth. <laughs> I thought it was Lake Malawi. But there again, that's probably not either. Anyway, what about your best souvenir? Well, I'm... I'm a bit boring in that the souvenirs that I take from places tends to be fridge magnets. And actually, my most recent fridge magnet is a great tortelloni, which is from obviously from Bologna, so relevant. Um, and uh, it looks very misshapen as per the ones I made. So I thought it was very fitting. Uh, well, it, it, what's the strangest brew you've ever drunk, whether or not it's currently in your fridge? I think this would have to be a Bombardino, which is a... Um, you get in the Italian Alps, uh, and I think it's kind of only really drunk in the mountains when you're sub-zero temperatures, and it's this lurid orange drink, which I think, if I'm right, is half advocat and half hot brandy with a topped whipped cream, and uh, you're supposed to drink it halfway through your day of skiing and then try and manage to make it home after a couple of them. Um, and it's definitely warming, if not kind of burning your insides. Um, but it's, 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 it's an experience in itself. OK, what's the first thing you pack, the most important thing in your um, in your luggage? For me, it's got to be one of those neck pillows that kind of circumferentially surround oh, your neck yeah. and is a, an essential part of me being able to sleep. On, I'm quite good at sleeping on transport and it tends to be what my friends and people I go traveling are very envious of. But I think that this is the key thing to it. I think that your ability to have a pillow while sitting upright is um, is an essential for me, especially one that you can blow up so it doesn't take up any um, room in your bag. The oddest place that you have slept, Silas? I think this is, you, you earlier in the podcast reminded me of um, being being bitten on a beach somewhere and swimming, I think, was mentioned by one of your guests. And I was thinking when I was in um, an island called Koh Rong, just uh, off Cambodia or Cambodian island, Koh Rong, the northern tip of that has a beach called Lonely Beach, which they say is the mo one of the most mm. remote beaches in Asia. And you have to trek through the forest to get there. Um, and I slept on a hammock on this beautiful beach. And again, remember it being both the most idyllic but also painful place because I got absolutely demolished by mosquitoes where, oh, despite no. my hammock saying it had an inbuilt mosquito net, I think it was slightly flawed. But you could walk out into the sea um, at night and the phosphorescence was absolutely the most insane thing I've ever seen. So it was kind of one of those dualities of travelling, of it being the most beautiful but also slightly the most painful thing I've ever done. And is it correct that the slogan in, that the Cambodian Tourist Board uses for it is what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, and having worked as an island medic there, I can definitely say that things do go wrong often. 
<laughs> well, that's a, a very good uh, uh, way to finish this week's uh, podcast. Uh, thank you so much, uh, uh, Silas. And um, next week um, sees our award-winning Christmas quiz returning for another go. Of course, we're always happy to hear about the great places where you've slept for the night, where you've seen things go very badly wrong or indeed very right. You can get in touch. Uh, just tweet us at you should have BT or leave us a voice message. Anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there. For now, ahead of the Christmas quiz from me, Simon Calder. And from me, Mick Webb. Goodbye. Goodbye. And from me, Silas. Goodbye. Goodbye.